whereas philosophy is certainly not self-expression. And philosophy, of course, is argument. Uh, and you can say, well, is the conclusion true or is the argument valid? Welcome to the second season of Five Questions, the podcast where we don't ask if the conclusion's true or the argument valid, but what they say about you. I'm your host, Kieran Setia. In each episode, I ask a philosopher five questions about themselves. There are two ground rules. One is that follow-up questions are allowed. The other is that the question I'm about to ask doesn't count as one of the five. So could you introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are and what kind of philosophical work you do? My name is Cheryl Misak. I teach philosophy at the University of Toronto and have done so pretty much my whole career since 1990. I work on American pragmatism, the history of analytic philosophy, ethics and political philosophy, and a little bit of philosophy of medicine. Well, you also recently wrote a really wonderful book about Frank Ramsey, which is philosophical, but it's also a biography. I mean, could you say a bit about how that happened? One of the wonderful things about being a philosopher is that you get to write about and think about anything you please. And uh, so it was really a, a real pleasure to wander into writing a biography. So Ramsey was the philosophical hero of my previous book called Cambridge Pragmatism, where I looked at the influence of pragmatism in Cambridge Massachusetts on Cambridge, England. And Ramsey was the connector. He had been very interested in C.S. Peirce and brought pragmatism to Cambridge, England. And uh, someone, Amartya Sen, suggested that I write a biography of Ramsey, and I just leapt into it. Like Part of the story of that was that you found an archive of material from someone who had been writing a biography and didn't. And that was sort of part of the material you were able to use in writing your biography. How did that happen? So I'd already started writing my biography and had a sentence in a draft of a preface that said, it's really a shame that no one wrote a biography of Ramsey when there were still people alive who had known him. So I know people and you know people who knew Richard Braithwaite, who was a friend of Ramsey's. But of course, all those people died in at least the, at the latest, the late 1980s. And I started my biography just in, the, in 2014. And so I had said, this is a shame uh, that no one had done this earlier. And then I was in the Max Newman archives at St. John's College, Cambridge, and I found a letter from a DPhil student in 1982 in Oxford, who wrote to Newman saying, I'm a DPhil student uh, in Oxford, I'm writing a biography of Frank Ramsey, I know you knew him well, I have a motor car, could I come and interview you? And to make a very long story short, I tracked that woman down, she had never written a biography, but she compiled a huge amount of material. And she ended up giving it to me and actually gifting it to the University of Toronto. So now anyone can go and, and consult it. And that was a, a really rich source of material. That is an amazing story. I'm gonna I'm gonna follow up with one more question that bends the rules of the podcast, but uh, I have the liberty to do that, which is to ask you a question about Frank Ramsey. So you didn't pick him as a philosopher you would go back in time to meet. So we, we don't get to talk about him in that context. But I'm going to ask you now, if you could go back in time and ask Frank Ramsey one question, what would you ask him? One question. Well, I think I would ask him, 
how the heck he managed to get as much work done as he did in his uh, really 10 years of being a kind of almost adult thinker. So he died at the age of 26, and he did such an alarming amount of absolutely first-class work in philosophy and mathematics and economics and decision theory. It's just absolutely stunning. So I, I would want to ask him how he did that, how he managed to do it. I fear that the secret would not be one that was really transferable. You know, it's. <laughs> I remember thinking this about when I was in grad school. I remember trying to figure out what the secret to teaching a good grad seminar was. And Gideon Rosen was one of the teachers who I, I thought was just incredible at doing that. And afterwards, I remember sitting around with grad students over coffee and talking about what he did. And we were like, yeah, I think the secret is just to be incredibly brilliant. Yeah, that seems to be it. It was, it was not very useful. I worry that Ramsey's answer will be a little similar. It's like the, the, the sheer intellectual power is, is off the charts. Yes. I mean, one practical tip that I think he would give us is the tip that may perhaps actually Russell gave him. So I don't know that Russell gave him this tip, but it certainly was Russell's mode of working as well. So both Russell and Ramsey woke up in the morning, every morning, Christmas Day, holidays, and got a little bit of writing done. You know, a good morning's writing, even if it was two or three hours. And I think that is, is at least one practical uh, secret to his success. But of course, then there was all that brilliance as well. Well, that's, that's good. So we actually got a practical tip out of this. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm grateful for that. I'm going to move on to the first official question. So the podcast begins with Iris Murdoch telling us that philosophy is not self-expression, but she also wrote to do philosophy is to explore one's temperament and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth. So does your temperament influence your philosophy? And if so, how? I think it probably does, or at least people tell me that it does. So I, I'm quite practical, and I've done some big practical jobs in academic administration, for instance. And my uh, main interest in philosophy is American pragmatism. And while, of course, American pragmatism isn't some banal, some banal philosophy that it says, you know, do what's practical. There is a, a link between practice and theory that American pragmatism draws out. And I think I have a kind of pragmatist temperament. Do you think that generalizes? Like, do you think other people who work on pragmatism are like you in that respect? Is this something you've noticed in interacting with other philosophers? Well, certainly it's not necessary because the founder of American pragmatism, Charles S. Peirce, was probably one of the least practical people around, in, certainly in terms of, of uh, sorting out his own career and getting on in life. I mean, he was a working scientist, so in that sense he was very practical, but he was very impractical in other ways. So it's not necessary to be practical if you're a pragmatist. Do you have a, a kind of purse side to your personality too, a, a kind of uh, speculative, impractical side that coexists with your pragmatist leaning? Uh, yes. So I, yes, I do have a speculative side and purse certainly did, but that's not the kind of impracticality I was talking about. He, he, he couldn't organize a house move. He couldn't get his teaching together. He got fired from job left, right and center. And in that sense, he was not practical. I see. And that doesn't characterize you. You're an, you're an organized, effective person. Yes, sometimes. So I wanted to ask you how you got into pragmatism, how that became an interest. But I'm going to ask you the second question, and then we'll see how these two hook up, if at all. Question two is, who was your most inspiring teacher? 
I have a, a bit of an embarrassment of riches here. I've had a lot of really great teachers, starting from when I was an undergraduate at the University of Lethbridge, a guy that no one will have heard of, named Michael Kabara, who really got me into thinking about purse. But then I was at Columbia. I studied with Isaac Levi. That was wonderful. And when I went to Oxford, I had uh, really, I was had three supervisors, Susan Hack, Chris Hookway and David Wiggins. But if I had to choose from all of those wonderful teachers, I would uh, certainly choose David Wiggins. He's was definitely the most inspiring of the lot. What was he like as a teacher? Could you describe his sort of style as a as a philosophical instructor? He didn't do much instructing. He did a lot of thinking with you. You know, he would mull over questions with me and you know, kind of work through problems with me rather than instruct me. And, uh, and that, that just was very in- inspiring. I felt like I was engaged in a, in a project alongside him, although I did, you know, of course, learn every day from him. But, uh, but it, was, it was very engaging rather than uh, one-sided. I mean, I think he, he wrote about Peirce in connection with some of his work on truth. Was he the path that got you into pragmatism as a philosophical movement, a philosophical idea? No, I came to Oxford wanting to write a, a dissertation on Peirce's account of truth. And I had been at Columbia working with Isaac Levi, and that might have seemed to be quite a natural place to stay. But Columbia at the time, this was in the mid-80s, was a really unhappy place. And even though I had a had a great working relationship with Isaac, I just thought, oh, do I really want to spend the next five or six or seven or eight years here where everyone seemed to be shouting at everyone else. So I I went to Oxford, which, as Michael Dummett put it, he was head of the sub-faculty of, Ox- of philosophy when I got there. He said, well, why do you want to write a dissertation on person Oxford? It's the, we don't do that here. And I, I said to him, well, I, David Wiggins, I think, has read person. He has some interesting things to say about him. And indeed, uh, he he had read person. You're right. He he was employing some really important thoughts of persons for his own account of truth, objectivity, and subjectivity. And so that's, I think, why we ended up working so nicely together. We both were coming at the same topics from slightly different angles. Me much more from a kind of purse scholarship angle, and David from his perch of tremendous brilliance. I mean, you mentioned Dummett's skepticism. Was there resistance more generally to working on pragmatism? And it, it, it has been, and I suppose it still in some ways remains, a little bit of an outlier in that it's a movement in American philosophy that was hugely important, but of which it's completely sort of permissible to be totally ignorant if you're a philosophy student these days, except maybe via, maybe you have to know traces of it in Quine or something later on. But actual first-hand knowledge of Peirce or Dewey or James is completely optional. And so did you feel that you were doing something, that you were in a kind of marginalized field? Not, not at all. So, so American pragmatism is often said to be marginalized, and some people who work in the area feel marginalized. You know, I, I went to a place where one would almost expect uh, that you might be marginalized because no one uh, really did it except for David Wiggins and 
definitely was you know just getting into it if you like but no not at all i had a wonderful time in oxford i didn't feel that i was out of place or out of step in in any way final question about your teachers that i'm curious about you were at columbia working with isaac levi were you around at the same time as Sidney Morgan Besser, who was also interested in pragmatism? Do you have a Morgan Besser interaction? Oh, I, I was definitely there when Sidney was there, loved him, uh, had lots of wonderful Morgan Besser interactions. I could never get a handle on what Sidney thought of pragmatism. So, you know, Sidney had lots of objections to this, that, and the other thing, but it was Isaac who really was working within the pragmatist tradition to go somewhere. So Sydney was more, well, that won't work, that won't work. But Isaac was, you know, let's see what works and, and let's let's move it along. So uh, I, as I say, I had uh, lots of really wonderful interactions with Sydney, but not so many wonderful intellectual interactions with him. Okay, I'm going to swerve away from philosophy. And maybe this will pick up on the practical side of your temperament too. This is question three. If you weren't a philosopher, what would you do? I would have been a lawyer. I had been on my way to law school as an undergraduate when I discovered philosophy and then completely got derailed from uh, the law idea. But it's not just that I would have been a lawyer had I not become besotted with philosophy. It's also that later on, when I had some real dealings with legal issues, I found that I I loved it and uh, actually found myself thinking, yeah, I would have really liked being a lawyer. So when, when I have done a lot of big jobs in academic administration and there's always a whole swirl of legal questions. So, you know, I met with the university lawyers twice a week, everything from copyright law to labor law to, well, all sorts of other things. And uh, and I really uh, found that that was uh, something that I enjoyed a lot. I mean, do you have serious regrets? Do you sometimes wish you had stayed on that other track? Not, not for a second. So I, I love being a philosopher. I, I, I am bewildered when I hear some of my fellow philosophers say that it's just a terrible job and, you know, are done by. I just think it's it's uh, it's a real privilege to be able to do what we do, which is research and teach in really whatever domain that uh, takes our interest. And uh, you know, because I had all of this engagement with law when I was doing these administrative jobs, I don't feel short shifted at all. Well, maybe there's a transition from dissatisfaction with philosophy, the kind of dissatisfaction some of your colleagues or, or others might feel, to question four, which takes us back to the profession. What do you hope for from philosophy in the next 20 years? I hope for philosophy that, that philosophers kind of reclaim their place in the public world. So it's not that uh, philosophers have entirely lost their public facing side. You know, plenty of philosophers, yourself included, write in a way that's accessible to non-philosophers. You know, your lovely book on midlife is a perfect example of this. But uh, philosophy 
used to be more at the center of intellectual life. And I think that it's in a way our duty to to speak to contemporary issues, uh, whether they be uh, things like copyright law or, you know, I do quite a bit of work in, in medicine, I guess, I guess you'd call it bioethics, but also, you know, I've, I've sat on a bunch of international committees looking at things like medically futile and inappropriate treatment and other issues. And I just think that uh, if you've got the education and training that we have, you ought to employ it uh, in in public life. And uh, it's not to say that that we shouldn't be completely engaged in minute questions about the history of philosophy or logic, you know, all that is wonderful and our, it's our bread and butter, if you like. But, but we should also wander away from those very technical inside baseball questions and think about issues in a way that is accessible to non-philosophers. I mean, do you have a sense of how and why the shift happened whereby philosophers became less public figures? I mean, was it a shift, do you think, in the kinds of questions that philosophers address or the kinds of writing they do, or more of an external shift in the sort of surrounding culture and and sort of political world that marginalized or sidelined philosophers? So when would you, when would you date that shift if you were going to date it? I don't know. I mean, so I, are you, th- yeah, I was going to ask you the, the same question. I mean, I feel like you said philosophers used to be more public figures. And I suppose there was a period where Bernard Williams was on government commissions and there were sort of philosophers who would appear like the Brian McGee TV series. That's one of my huge inspirations for this podcast. The quote from Murdoch at the beginning is from a Brian McGee interview with Iris Murdoch that appeared on BBC Two in the 70s. So that's not so long ago that it was possible for philosophers who were working professional philosophers to also have an audience. Interestingly, what they were doing in those, the Brian McGee interviews in the the wonderfully named or the awfully named Men of Ideas was they were really just talking about their own work. I mean, they weren't necessarily, or about, you know, the, the work of philosophical figures that people might want to learn about. So I don't know if the, I don't know if there was a shift before then or, or after then, but there's definitely a kind of difference I think between the 1970s and and now. Yeah. So so perhaps I should have said there have been times, not a time, but there have been times when philosophers have been more more engaged uh, with the public, because if you look at William James in the late 1800s, he was shouting at his fellow philosophers for not being as publicly engaged as they used to be. So I think there has been a kind of ebbing and flowing of of engagement by philosophers with the non-philosophical community. And I think you're completely right that in the era of Williams and McGee, there was a lot of really wonderful engagement. And that can be just, look, you know, here's what I think about the nature of time. Uh, that's that's just as important as an engagement with the public as sitting on you know a kind of uh, commission that is looking into some big ethical issue. It's just that philosophers, in my view, ought to be more public facing than they have been in the last uh, 
let's say, 20 years. But I, I do actually detect a shift, you know, a whole bunch of really great things that philosophers are doing these days to reach out outside of, of their own small world. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how much the willingness of philosophers to reach a wider audience is enough to make this shift happen. Like how, how much the problem lies in philosophical insularity and how much it's to do with shifts in the wider intellectual and political culture. I mean, do you, do you think if philosophers reach out in these ways, that will change the the kind of conversation and the role of philosophers in it? Or do you, are you, do you worry about the, the kind of broader cultural political context? I definitely worry about some parts of the broader cultural and political context. But I think there's a huge proportion of the population who not only is receptive to the kind of work that philosophers do, but is actually hungry for it. And actually, the Ramsey biography is a nice case in point. Like, I've had emails from all sorts of people from all kind of walks of life, people in my tennis club who have read it. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's really heartening. And, you know, I think we shouldn't take the worst examples of of humanity and uh, and think that you know all of the public is like that. I think there's a there's a huge huge audience and desire for this kind of thing. Well, reacting to what what seems like a kind of fairly optimistic attitude to the future of public philosophy, I'm going to ask you question five. This is the the second Iris Murdoch question. It's always a significant question to ask about any philosopher. She wrote, "What is she afraid of?" So what are you afraid of? I'm afraid of the things that I think everyone should be afraid of. I'm afraid of threats to democracy. I'm afraid of uh, what's happening in countries like the United States and India with populism, with Brazil, and, and I think no democracy is immune from this. And I'm afraid of climate change and you know the, the future that we're leaving for our children. You know, as I say, I think everyone ought to be afraid of these things. I have no kind of deep, dark, private fears other than these uh, really pressing issues that uh, that I think, as I say, press in on all of us. I mean, did your optimism extend to, to philosophy's intervention in those? Like, do you see hope for philosophers making progress in their public engagement on issues like climate change or the conditions and maintenance of democracy? Well, I think that the that the more our public conversations are reason-driven, the better off we'll be. And what do we do as philosophers? We give reasons. So we should be in there giving reasons for all the things that matter to us. Obviously, some philosophers will give reasons that I uh, am dead set against, but I just think that the more we give reasons, the more our communities and our culture is deliberative, the better. And actually, this is linked to pragmatism, right? Because the pragmatist hopes that our inquiries, our deliberations will lead to beliefs that stand up best to experience, which includes the moral experience of of others. And that hope has no chance of being realized unless 
our inquiries and our conversations are educated and reason-driven. Well, that's perfect. Having come full circle back to pragmatism, I'll say thank you, Cheryl Misak, for appearing on the podcast. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Cheryl Misak is professor of philosophy at the University of Toronto. Her books include Truth and the End of Inquiry, The American Pragmatists, and Frank Ramsey, A Sheer Excess of Powers. Thanks for listening to Five Questions. Mm-hmm.